Our Lord God, we thank you for what you have done for us. We know that we are sinners in need of your mercy. We thank you for Jesus' death, which pays the price for our sin. Thank you for his resurrection that shows that he conquered death. Thank you for the glimpse of the future glory that we are waiting for. Thank you for your spirit that lives in our hearts, that intercedes for us and transforms us to be more like your son. Our Lord God, we ask that today as we look at your word, you would transform us so that we might know your will. Amen. Well, good morning again. Today we're going to be looking at these two wonderful verses from Romans chapter 12. In the flow of Romans, these verses mark a change in the focus of what Paul has been talking about. Up until this point, Paul has been taking us on a journey to understand the nature of who God is and who we are and what he has done for us. We've talked a lot over the last few months about the theology of salvation. We've talked a lot about doctrine that forms the basis of Christianity. And today, we're moving from this theology to the ethics of how we live as Christians. We're moving from talking about the doctrine that lays the foundation for the Christian of life to the doctrine of how to live as Christians. And so when we come to today's passage and read that first word, therefore, we are setting the scene of starting something great. The therefore is not just a quick inflection, but it's actually one of the great therefores in the Bible. One of the adages that I've always been taught is that when you come across a therefore in the Bible, you always need to stop and look at the reason what the therefore is there for. And so we're going to start by doing that. And we're going to look back, first of all, just before this passage in chapter 11. And in Romans chapter 11, starting at verse 30, this is what Paul says. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of this disobedience... So they too have now become disobedient in order that they now may receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them. And then Paul says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out, who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been been his counsellor, who has ever given to God that God should repay him. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. You see, we've just looked at God's great work of salvation and the mercy and the redemption that he has extended to all men. We've looked at his glory and his grace. But when we look at these first four verses that lead us into chapter 12, we aren't seeing something new. This isn't a new teaching that Paul has just sprung on us before he gets to this great therefore. But rather, it's a summary of everything that he's talked about in Romans up to this point. It's almost like Paul had finished powering through the first 11 chapters of Romans, went to bed, and then woke up the next morning and went, okay, well, now that that's done, what do we do next? That's right. Therefore, all of this stuff that we've been talking about, this is what we're going to do now. And so, just to kind of harp on this for a minute we're going to go back and we're going to look at the first 11 chapters and how they've actually set out the objective truth about God and and what it means for us now that we're living. So let's look at how he starts by summarizing it. 
Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in view of God's mercy, as we think back on, look back on what we've looked at over the last few months in Romans, Paul is telling us that what we should walk away thinking about is God's mercy. So let's go back and look at that. When Paul starts in Romans 1, he starts by talking about the gospel as the power of God's salvation for all who believe. God's mercy. We see the wrath of God being revealed and God giving people to their sinful nature and the coming of God's wrath, but the deliverance of those who seek him. We see his mercy. In the proclamation that comes, no one is righteous, not even one. No one seeks God. All have turned away. And the revelation that no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law, rather through the law we become conscious of sin. We see God's mercy in allowing us to see how he should have us live. In the beautiful summary of the gospel that's in chapter 3, the righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. We see his mercy. And as Paul explains to us the righteousness that it is credited to us by faith, just like that righteousness that was credited to Abraham, we again see God's mercy. In the proclamation that we now have peace with God, we see God's mercy. As Paul shows us how the problem of sin has been dealt with in Jesus and the curse of Adam is now undone, we again see God's mercy. When we look at the role of the law and sin in our lives and we see that sin no longer is our master and that we've been delivered through Jesus' death, we again see God's mercy. In our struggle with sin and the war that goes on inside us that we see in chapter 7 and the battle between the good that we are called to do but feel incapable of doing and then the giving of the Holy Spirit in chapter 8, we see God's mercy. As we look forward to the glorious future that those who trust in Jesus have, we again see God's mercy. As we look at God's election of the saints and his guiding hand on our hearts to trust in him for salvation, we again see his mercy. As we look to the Jews and we see God's patience, his faithfulness to his promise and his use of the Gentiles to bring them to trust in Jesus, we again see God's mercy. As we see Paul explain God's faithfulness to his promise in the way which he cultivates his people, we again see his mercy. And therefore, in view of God's mercy, he starts this turnaround in chapter 12 to tell us what we are to do. The therefore is about what we are to do now. But the background, the context, the reason why we're to do this it is because we've seen God's great work of salvation in our lives. We've seen the great lengths that he has gone to to care for the world. We've seen that every heart is hard against God, except for his call to bring his people to him. We've seen that our lives are so steeped in sin, that the things that we do are futile and useless, except for his spirit which draws us in repentance to Christ. 
we have seen that we cannot confess that Christ is Lord or believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead except by his work to allow us to understand and believe. It is, in fact, God's mercy that allows us to do this and that we see in all this. It's because of his work, his gracious mercy, that he freely gives us that we can be here serving, worshipping and celebrating together. And so, what are we called to do? Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, I urge you to offer your bodies. Paul wants us to be clear that the right response to God's mercy, to the grace that he has shown us in death and resurrection, in deliverance from darkness and sin, is to offer ourselves. But not just part of ourselves. He says to offer our bodies. We may be tempted to see that Christianity is merely an offering of our minds, an offering of our time on Sunday mornings, a commitment during the week to go to Bible study, a prayer meeting here or there, maybe three minutes of reading our Bible in the mornings when we wake up. For the more adventurous amongst us, maybe it's something like helping out in a homeless shelter or giving some money to an end of financial year appeal. But Paul isn't mincing words here. He says that in view of God's mercy, we are to offer our bodies, the whole thing, the hands, the head, the feet, the heart, the lungs, every joint and ligament, every thought, every breath. Because God has shown us great mercy, immense mercy, life-changing mercy, mercy that meant even though we didn't seek him, we can now be free to love him. Mercy that even though we were destined for death and hell, we've been given new life in Jesus and now look forward to future glory that is beyond anything that is in our comprehension. What we have been given, great mercy, is so great that Paul urges us to offer everything we have back in response to it. But what does that look like? How do we offer our bodies? Well, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. This sacrifice is not something that's for the payment of sin, a sin offering, but a sacrifice of the best meat and produce, something that when burnt up is acceptable and pleasing to God. It's like the smell of a roast lamb dinner cooking in the oven. It's the smell of a perfectly cooked barbecue. It's the taste of something so mouth-watering and delicious that it just can't be turned down. Except that our sacrifice isn't burnt up and consumed and used. It's to be living something that is ongoing. And just like you wouldn't half-cook a roast dinner, the living sacrifice that we offer shouldn't be half-baked. It shouldn't be partially cooked through. It should be done to perfection and offered holistically and entirely to God. Why? Because of the mercy that he has shown us. I know I keep coming back to this, but it's the essence of what Paul is driving home here. Paul is not telling us to do this because it's our responsibility to achieve salvation. He's not saying that we need to offer ourselves as living sacrifices because this will earn us merit with God. He's not saying that we will need to make ourselves more acceptable and pleasing to God. He is saying that in view of what God has done for us, in view of the mercy that he has shown us, in view of his offer of salvation, in view of the redemption of our souls, in view of our deliverance from death to glory, in view of all of this, we are to respond 
by offering our entire being as sacrifices to God. And this is the inflection in the book of Romans. At the start, I pointed out that chapter 12 marks a change in what Paul has been doing. So far, we've been talking about theology and what God has done, but we're now moving into how we should live in light of this. And, and this is the beginning of this. The first thing we need to understand is the way that we should live is holistically and wholly for God. Because when we do this, we're living in step with what God has asked for us. When we do with this, we are living in accordance with his call, holy calling on our lives. When we do this, we are being holy. When we do this, we are pleasing to God. When the Jews prepared a sacrifice in the temple, they would take the best bits of meat and set them aside for God. The whole sacrifice was made holy, but these bits were extra holy. They were set apart. They were especially pleasing to God. And that's the image that Paul is drawing on here. The sacrifice that we offer is to be holy and pleasing to God. But what does this mean? Well, when we live in this way, the good works that we do are enjoyed by God. They are acceptable to him, and he is glorified by what we do. And we're going to talk a little bit about this over the next little while. One of the things that happen when we reflect on our sin and our sinful nature is that we're reminded that there is nothing good in our lives. We recognize that sin has corrupted every part of our being. We recognize that we cannot please God and bring glory to him. We understand that even our good deeds are, are, are not enough to please God, and we fall in front of God and lean on his mercy and plead for our need for Jesus. We are drawn in our sin to repentance before him because we know that our good can never be good enough. We acknowledge that we need his grace and mercy so that we can even stand before a holy God. But this passage reminds us that once we have been redeemed, once we have received the Spirit and placed our trust in a risen Jesus, a remarkable change occurs. When we offer our whole selves as a living sacrifice to him, when we give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord, when we sacrifice our wants and our desires, our needs, and instead focus on what God wants and desires and needs from us, when we look to the interests of others before we look to our own interests, when we live in step with his holy calling on our lives, at this point, our works, our deeds, our actions become good. When the work that we do does not come out of our selfish desires to glorify ourselves, to earn our way to God, to follow the law to get us there, our actions bring glory to God. When we do this, we are holy. At this point, we are pleasing to God. And so this is the crescendo that we've been coming to. We've been building up for the last 11 chapters. We've seen what God has done for us. We've understood our sin. We've understood the great lengths that God has gone to to redeem his people. And now we're called to a response, a response that isn't partial or knee-deep. It's a, it's a response that is all in, jumping head first. It's all of us in response to what God has done for us. And this is how we worship. There is something marvellous about this thought. When we gather together on Sundays, we, we talk about coming together to worship God. We, we recognise that there is something special about meeting together and focusing on his glory and focusing on his character. There is something special about singing his praise and encouraging each other as we pray together. But 
This is only the tip of the iceberg when it comes to how we worship the Lord. In many cultures, you worship your ancestors by giving them food offerings. In many religions, you go on pilgrimages um, uh, or by honoring the good of other people. But the way that we worship our God, our spiritual act of worship, is about not just doing some things. Worshipping our God is something that we do with all of ourselves, all of our lives, all of our being, every day, in every corner where we live. It's all of us for him all of the time. So how do we do that? Well, Paul doesn't leave us in the dark when it comes to this. He goes on through the rest of the chapter, and in fact the rest of the book of Romans, to explain what it means to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. But he starts with this summary in verse 2. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul tells us that the first place to start in offering our bodies as living sacrifices is in something that is countercultural and radically different. And if we think about it, Paul has actually spent a large chunk of the book of Romans describing what the pattern of the world looks like. It does not seek God. It does not glorify him. It exchanged the truth of God for a lie. It seeks the interests of itself rather than the interests of the other. It is a way that is doomed to bondage and decay and destruction. It is a way that ends in death. It prizes the material things of this world above the things of God and heaven. It prizes the created things of this world above the creator who made them. It tries to follow the law but cannot keep up to the standard that it sets for itself. And we are told to not conform to this pattern any longer. We are to be different. We are to be transformed into something that is countercultural. And how does this happen? Well, it happens by the renewing of our mind. Wow, what a big thing. It doesn't happen by keeping some rules or by ticking some boxes. It happens by a fundamental change at the very core of ourselves. A renewal. I think it kind of is like an episode of Better Homes and Gardens. Now, I, I must admit, I don't know a lot about these kinds of shows because I don't really watch TV that much anymore. But from what I imagine, you have someone like Noni Hazelhurst. I think she's still on there. I'm sure she is. She was at some stage. I'm getting lots of shaking heads. Just imagine for a second that it's Noni Hazelhurst. It's really important to the story anyway. Um, but, but what she does is she walks into your house and she says, wow, this is old. This is dank. This is musty. It's falling apart. The paintings are slipping off the walls. The hinges are broken. The doors are broken. Everything's a complete and utter mess. We've got to renew this. And then a team of builders, interior decorators, carpenters, painters, furniture people, carpet layers, all come in and over the space of 24 hours radically change the place and it doesn't look anything like it was before. They take away everything that was old and make it into something that's new and fresh, something that amplifies the light, that exudes positive space. It fundamentally changes the way that it looks and works and functions. The transformation that we're talking about here is not a quick change. It's a fundamental remake of our minds. 
It's a complete transformation of the old into something new. But it is new furniture. It's new windows. It's completely ripping up the old carpet and the underlay and putting in new flooring. It's storing different things on the bookshelves. It's about cleaning away the old furniture and putting in new. It's taking out the things that are in our mind and freeing us to be new and fresh, transformed and renewed. But I think for each of us, in our own ways, we continue to live according to the pattern of the world. Our minds aren't fully renovated. We let the spirit touch the kitchen or the bathroom, but we want to keep the bedroom for ourselves. We move the clutter out of the living room and shove it into the spare room. We let ourselves be partially transformed, but we hold back. We want to keep areas of our lives in sin because change is hard and we don't want to make it. We want to keep living according to the pattern of the world because it's easier, because it seems nice, because it's comfortable, because it's the mess that we know. We want to do things that we see others doing that we think are fun, enjoyable, or good. We don't want to commit to the total renovation that we are called to. Maybe it's the way that you talk to other people. Maybe it's the way that you value other people. Maybe it's the way you use your money. Maybe it's the way you raise your kids. Maybe it's the way you treat your spouse. Maybe it's the language you use. Maybe it's the way that technology works out in your life. Maybe it's the kind of TV shows you watch. Maybe it's the books you choose to read. Friends, in view of God's mercy, we are called to offer ourselves as living sacrifices, sacrifices that are holy and pleasing to God. When we hold back, when we keep aspects of our lives from, in sin, we stop ourselves from being transformed by the renewing of our minds, and we're flying in face of what God has done for us. We are ignoring his great mercy for us. We are not responding in the way that he has called us to. And so Paul is urging us to look at our lives, to understand what has been done for us, to understand the depth of the salvation that we have been offered, to understand the glory that we are heading towards, and to understand that we must be transformed entirely, wholly, completely. There is no room for our old selves to remain. We must let the renovation, the renewal of our minds happen. Paul gave us a glimpse of this in chapter 8 when he said, We have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. The first thing we need to understand about the renewing of our minds is that it is something that is done by the Spirit. 
It's not something that comes from our natural selves, but rather from the spirit that God has given us. The spirit that lives inside each of us, inside each and every believer. The spirit that challenges and changes our conscience. The spirit that helps us to put to death the sinful nature. Well, what does this look like? The, the clue comes from the outworking of the renewing of our minds. Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing and perfect will. The outworking of a renewed mind is one that can know the will of God. And to be able to approve and test within our own lives what is right and wrong for us to do. And how do we do that? Well, we put to death what is sinful within us. We know God more. We love him more deeply. And, and we do that by getting to know him more. And the obvious place to start for that is in his word. By prayerfully, thoughtfully, and regularly engaging with the Bible, the revelation of God's character that we have been given by understanding how he has told us to live, by understanding his character and the way that he has acted in the past, by understanding his commands and promises for us, by understanding his great mercy and salvation. We need to be immersed in it. We need to be reading it daily and not with the attitude that says we're just filling in time or just doing what we have to, but with a heart that says, speak to me, Lord, so that I might be transformed. I must confess that I struggle with this. I cycle through phases of regular Bible reading. I cycle through phases of regular prayer. I cycle through phrases of constantly seeking God's will. On Thursday morning, I woke up and I was praying. And as I was praying, it struck me that while I had done it more regularly this week than perhaps I had for a little while, the regular nature of prayer was something that felt like a novelty. It wasn't that it wasn't something that I hadn't been in the habit of doing, but I was reminded again that I needed to be talking God, to God and seeking his will as I talked to him. And I was struck that I couldn't remember the last time that I sat down in front of the Bible and prayed, Lord God, help me to know your will and your character as I read your scripture today. Help me to be transformed by what I read. I, I had been reading my Bible and, and even in preparing for today's sermon, but it was something that was happening, and I was just doing it for me. And my own selfishness was at the center of it, rather than the God who called me to transformation. And in that moment, I was overcome with thankfulness for the spirit that lives within me, that it was transforming my mind and renewing me and reminding me that I needed to humbly come to God's word to be transformed and changed, that I needed to be humbly coming before him in prayer and asking his spirit to work through me so that I could see his will and his character and that then I would be able to know it and live it. And I suspect I'm not alone. I suspect for many of you, even though you're regular in reading your Bible and you're regular in prayer, at times, you're doing the right things out of a selfish heart. I suspect that at times, when we come to God's word, we don't do it to see him, but we just do it out of habit because we know that we should or out of a sense of duty. When we do this, we're not letting God transform our mind, 
but we are falling into a pattern, into a pattern of obedience. And so we need to pray earnestly for ourselves and for others uh, and for each other that the Spirit of God will draw us closer to Him and that He will change us. We need to pray earnestly that we will be transformed and that we will be able to know God's will, that we would know how He would have us live and to act in this world. We need to pray that we would be seeing more than just theology in Scripture, but that we will see God's character and how He would have us live and that that would transform into our own minds, and that our own minds would be transformed to live according to the pattern of his character as well. Because this is the outworking of our living sacrifice. It's not that we're saved for ourselves, or for our own good, or to just stand around saying, isn't God great? I mean, mean, we should do that. But the people that God wants us to be is people who are countercultural in this world, who are actively living and working, We'll look at this more over the coming weeks, but just to show you that I'm not completely off base about what this looks like, here are some of the things that Paul goes on to tell us about in the rest of Romans chapter 12. In verse 8, near the end, he says, the one who does acts of mercy, let him do it with cheerfulness. In verse 9, he says, let love be genuine. In verse 13, he says, contribute to the needs of the saints. In verse 14, he says, bless those who persecute you. In verse 15, he says, weep with those who weep. In verse 16, he says, associate with the lowly. In verse 17, he says, repay no one evil for evil. In verse 19, he says, never avenge yourselves. In verse 20, he says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. You know, those verses sound a lot like the same things that Jesus taught his disciples. It sounds a lot like the outworking of the law that we see in the Old Testament, It sounds a lot like the way of the life that Israel was called to, to care for the nations around them once they'd settled into the promised land. It sounds a lot like the character of God who has shown us mercy. And so, friends, we need to understand God's character even more. We need to understand his mind so that we can follow in this pattern. As we came to the end of chapter 11 and we marveled at the depth and the wisdom of God, We weren't just doing so idly to point out how far we were from it, but we were building to the point where we were being reminded about how we needed to be transformed. We needed to understand the depth and the knowledge of God and to know his will, because it is good, it is pleasing, it is perfect. And so I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind because then you will be able to test and know what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. As we come to the end of Romans we'll see more and more examples of how to do this in our lives. But don't let that stop you from starting today. Be transformed and encourage each other to be transformed. Let's pray. Paul wrote to Titus, For the grace of God that brings salvation 
has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope salvation that